You're listening to Midi Storytime, part of the Spare Change Library. This week we're reading the latest chapter of The Bride of the Tomb by Mrs. Alex McVeigh Miller. Chapter 23 Mrs. Vance had done herself more harm than good by the bold avowal of her love for Lancelot Darling. The innate delicacy and almost womanly refinement of his character revolted at the idea of her imprudent and ill-considered step. He could not understand why she should have lowered herself by declaring her love after all he had said regarding the constancy of his affection for his loved and lost Lily. He pitied, and yet the feeling of pity was more closely allied than he knew to a feeling that bordered on contempt. The fair widow herself was not by any means cast down by Lancelot's firm and resolute repulse. She thought, from her knowledge of masculine character in general, that Lancelot's vanity would soon overcome his first shocked repugnance to her unfeminine avowal and cause him to exult in the knowledge that he was so madly beloved by so beautiful and accomplished a woman. From that, there would be but a slight step to giving his love in return. She had not driven him away from her, for he had not said he would not come again. She would see him often and work on his feelings by every art of which she was mistress. Surely she could not fail to win him. He was young, impressible, and youth is not prone to constancy to the dead. True, he had an idle romantic fancy that love is love forevermore but time and her artifice would cure him of that. I will be very shy and humble when he first comes back again, she thought. No young maiden in her teens shall outdo me in coyness and reserve. I will make him think that my wild outburst that day was entirely unpremeditated and that I am thoroughly ashamed and repentant. He will begin to excuse me to himself, then he will pity my hopeless love, and then, ah, then, pity is akin to love. She was sitting in the drawing-room, rocking leisurely back and forth while she trifled over a delicate bit of fancy work. A fire burned cheerily on the marble hearth, for the late October days were growing chilly, and diffused an air of warmth and comfort in the large, luxuriously appointed apartment. Mrs. Vance herself was quite in keeping with the elegance of the room. Her house-dress of delicate pink cashmere, with trimmings of cream-white lace, made a beautiful spot of color in the darker, more subdued coloring of the furnishings around her. Ada came in from the conservatory with her arms full of flowers, and sitting down opposite the lady began to arrange them into tasteful bouquets. "'You need two roses to complete the harmony of your dress,' said she carelessly, selecting that number and tossing them over to her. Mrs. Vance took the roses and fastened them in her breast and hair. "'Now your toilette is perfect,' said the young girl in a tone of admiration that was quite sincere, for though she believed Mrs. Vance to be a false and scheming woman, she could not but admit the perfection of her beauty and grace. There had been no more angry passages between Mrs. Vance and Ada, though the pure-hearted and impulsive girl had in no wise changed her opinion of the lady. But on mature reflection, she began to think that since Mrs. Vance was her father's guest, she had acted wrongly in thus declaring war with her. Therefore, she treated her as before her sudden outburst against her, with outward politeness and respect. The young girl appeared very lovely that morning. Her deep mourning dress, with its heavy crepe folds, could not obscure her beauty, and set off, like the somber setting of a jewel, her transcendent fairness. All traces of her severe illness in the summer had disappeared. Her cheeks were glowing with a faint seashell tint, deepening to glowing crimson on her full and pouting lips. Her large blue eyes had the serene, innocent look of a child's tender orbs. Her golden hair, simply drawn back and braided, allowed a soft curly fringe to escape and flutter caressingly over her low white brow. Mrs. Vance hated her for the beauty that recalled the image of the rival her jealous hand had ruthlessly slain. While they sat thus engaged, there was a ring at the doorbell, 
and presently the beloved object of Mrs. Vance's secret thoughts was shown in. He looked very handsome and distinguished as he replied to Ada's unembarrassed and sisterly greeting. Good morning, Lance. But his face flushed slightly as he bowed distantly to her companion. Mrs. Vance replied to his greeting with a bow that was quite as formal, and sinking languidly back into her seat fixed all her attention upon her work. Not a single glance of her down-drooped eyes was allowed to wander toward him. She preserved entire silence while the other two entered into a simple and desultory chat with the easy familiarity of old friends. At length, as though her embarrassment were becoming unendurable, she rose with an incoherent apology and, heaving a deep sigh, quitted the room abruptly and did not appear again. Ada looked after her departing form in amazement. "'What is the matter with Mrs. Vance?' asked she. "'You seem to have frozen her into a statue.' "'I'm sure I cannot tell,' he answered with an assumption of carelessness. "'But you barely spoke to each other. I'm sure I thought you two were the best of friends, really intimate, in fact. Yet you seemed on the most indifferent terms just now,' said she incredulously. Lance smiled carelessly and reached out for one of the roses in her lap. "'My dear little sister,' said he, "'who can answer for the vagaries of women? Mrs. Vance has always been exceedingly friendly with me, but she seems to have taken an opposite whim just now. But it would not be fair to question her motives, would it? Men have to bear the caprices of women without complaint, do they not? I believe one of the best of the female poets claims caprice as a right divine of the fair sex.' "'Oh, yes, Mrs. Osgood says, "'Tis helpless woman's right divine, her only right, caprice,' returned Ada, repeating the quotation with a very pretty emphasis. "'Then let us not question Mrs. Vance's right to exercise her divine prerogative. I dare not rebel, I must only submit. And by the way, begging your pardon for changing the subject, will you ride with me this evening? I came expressly to ask you. I have my new phaeton and cream-white ponies, the ones I purchased for Lily's use,' said he with a smothered sigh. She went to the window to look at them. How beautiful, how proud, how thoroughbred were the restive creatures champing at their silver bits, impatient of the little groom's restraint. How exquisite the costly little phaeton with its luxurious cushions of azure satin and the azure satin carriage robe thickly embroidered with white lilies. The equipage was dainty enough for Queen Mab herself. Ada sighed as she thought of the beautiful form that had chosen the rest of the coffin rather than these downy cushions to recline upon. It is beautiful, she said, really beautiful. Yes, I will ride with you in the park, Lance. Wait a minute until I get on my wrappings, for I believe it is a little chilly today. She tripped away lightly. Lance looked after her with an affectionate glance. A dear, sweet girl, he thought to himself. Surely Mrs. Vance misunderstands her, for I am sure she is true and sweet and kind. How like she grows to Lily. She came back presently, cloaked and heavily veiled. Are you ready? he asked. Not quite, she answered. I had forgotten to put my bouquets into the vases. She tripped around and disposed of her flowers and the various vases that adorned the room, then came back to him. Now I am ready, said she. They went out, took their places in the dainty phaeton. The little groom in blue and silver sprang into his place, and they were whirled swiftly away. From an upper window, Mrs. Vance was watching for the young man's departure. She started as she saw him drive off with Ada beside him and a lurid fire of rage and jealousy blazed in her heart. The fair-faced little devil, she muttered, clutching her hands tightly together. Oh, that I dared to murder her as I did the other one who came between me and him. She paced up and down, wild with contending passions. I was wrong to leave them together, she thought in bitter anger with herself, 
He was glad, perhaps, that I came away and left them to an uninterrupted tete-a-tete. I overreached myself that time, but ah, Ada Lawrence, woe be unto you if you win him from me. The postman's impatient rattling at the doorbell interrupted her angry mood. In a moment, a maid rapped at the door, delivered a letter to her, and went away. Mrs. Vance had no correspondence, usually. She guessed, with a sharp quiver of anger and fear, whence it came, and held it at arm's length a moment as if it had been a noxious reptile. The greedy old harpy, she muttered indignantly, tearing it open at last. Must she bleed me again so soon? She tore the coarse yellow envelope into a hundred little bits, then angrily scanned the note in her hand. It was very brief, but amounted to an imperative summons from Haiti Leverett to come to the old house tomorrow and bring all the money she could raise. That concludes this week's installment of The Bride of the Tomb. This production of The Bride of the Tomb features the voice talents of Laura Bang and Damien Katz. Chris Hallberg voices the intro and outro narratives. The theme music is The Guava Rag by Brett Donnelly. Midi Storytime in the Spare Chains Library produced by Lancelot Darling and Friends. This podcast is brought to you by DimeNovels.org, the Edward T. LeBlanc Memorial Dime Novel Bibliography.